0: I am so happy to welcome Lisa Miller to How to Build a Village. Lisa is joining us from Melbourne, where she hosts ABC News Breakfast, the national morning news and current affairs program. And her work as a journalist has taken her all over the world. She was based in London as Europe Bureau Chief for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC. And prior to that, she was based in Washington, D.C. as North America Bureau Chief. She's one of Australia's most familiar faces from her TV work, and she's also an author. Her book, Daring to Fly, was released in September 2021. Welcome, Lisa. Jill, it's so great to be talking to you. This is so great because, of course, you and I met through a book club in London. So it's so wonderful now to read your book. So talk to me about writing this book, which is memoir. It's a bit about your childhood, overcoming your fear of flying, your career, and also recent history of these huge global events, which you had the privilege of covering. What was it like to 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 go back and relive all
1: this? Uh, traumatic. <laughs> mm-hmm. People ask me whether it was cathartic, but I'm not sure whether it was cathartic until I'd actually finished it. While I was doing it, I came to a recognition, if I hadn't already had it, that that had been some pretty difficult, challenging times that I'd been through. Not just the most recent world politics and terror, but going back to having a fear and trying to overcome something that had become all consuming for me. Mm. Uh, I'd never thought that I would write a book. When you and I sat around talking about other people's books, I never thought that I would one day have something on a bookshelf anywhere. And so I'm, I'm half proud, I'm still half in awe, and then also terrified of ever thinking that I might sit down and start writing another one, because it's hard work. It's hard work. That's for sure. And yet,
0: and of course, you've been a storyteller your whole life. So in many ways, it lends itself naturally. I mean, one of my favorite parts about the book is you're, you're very candid about your life and the challenges that you face covering these often traumatic events. And You could talk a bit about how you've done this amazing work with the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma. I I love that you're helping to get this more into the conversation that it's hard to be a witness to the first draft of history.
1: You know, one of the first jobs that I did as a police rounds person when I was a young reporter it was at a tabloid newspaper and the expectation was that we would be able to Uh, do whatever story was placed in front of us, do death knocks, as they're called, when you are knocking on the door of a family that is grieving or has just suffered a, a terrible loss and that you would do that and not be affected at all, that we were taught that we were kind of bulletproof from what we were doing. But after about 15 years of doing that, I am doing journalism I realised that actually there's a cumulative effect on you when you are uh, rushing into areas and stories that other people rush away from. When you speak to someone who is at their most vulnerable and you are asking them to share their grief with you, you can't just shut that off. You can't be a piece of steel that somehow bounces back that grief and not absorb some of it. And the first time that I recognised that I had absorbed some of it was when I was covering the hanging of a young Australian in Singapore who'd been convicted of drug trafficking. And for two weeks, I stood outside Changi Prison in Singapore, watching his mother and his friends come and visit him every day. And At the end of that, I went back to Australia, he died, Uh, the Australian government had tried to save him. But I waited there before dawn on the final morning as the hangman came to take him to the gallows, as it was in Singapore. And when I got back to Australia, I felt so teary and Mm. irritable and emotional. And I heard a radio report about his funeral and they played the music Ave Maria, Mm. which he had walked to the gallows as the other prisoners had sung Ave Maria. Mm. And so they played it on this radio news story. And I was so distraught that I had to pull the car over. And I remember exactly where I was at the time and thinking to myself, what's wrong with me. So since that point, years of study and interest in this, and what secondary trauma can do has made me realize, actually, nothing was wrong with me. Mm. But no one had told me no one had explained to me that as a, a reporter, a camera operator, an editor who is sitting in a darkened edit suite, absorbing all of the pictures that are coming in, the raw footage Mm. that they then make palatable for an audience, that of course that is going to have an impact. So I've been fascinated by it because you can put building blocks in place, you can put some scaffolding around you, I've realised, to ensure that you don't end up being permanently damaged by the work that we do. And and how do you do that? How do you put up the scaffolding? Sometimes it's the most basic. When I look back to the Changi prison story, I mean, I wasn't eating drinking water or sleeping enough for those two weeks. So just that physical aspect, of course, starts to impact on your brain. But debriefing with peers, not necessarily your family or friends who aren't in the media because they don't understand what you're going through. Debriefing with peers, but also feeling that your work is worthy, that there is a reason that you are doing this. And that can often have the biggest effect. If you are unhappy with your employer or unhappy about what you're being asked to do in the way you're being asked to do it, that can have a really detrimental impact on your own mental health. So, so you know, working through those processes. I've also done what I can to ensure that the people I interview, whether it's the death knocks, whether it's, um, you know, the grieving families coming out of a Sandy Hook school massacre, Mm. that I try to put the power back into their court because they have been robbed of any power. They have had something happen to them and to their family, which is just an abomination. But to even say the most basic things like, where would you like to do the interview? Would you like someone with you? What would you like out of this interview so I can understand what's driving you to do this interview? Because how bad would it be that they agree to do the interview and the whole point of, you know, what it, whether it was, trying to make a point about gun laws or whether it was, you know, the covering the earthquake in Italy. And it was about building construction that if they weren't able to then get the point across that they had wanted to do the interview for. So the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma, I would absolutely recommend to anyone listening to this podcast because it has a very good website with a lot of tips for journalists about how to interview children how to interview people who've gone through traumatic experiences, and also then how to look after yourself. So you're not causing more damage as a journalist, you're not adding to the grief. And you're also ensuring that you're able to do your job and keep doing your job. Because Jill, you and I both know, so many people in this industry end up alcoholics and divorcees with mental health problems. And that, that you're losing so much experience. You don't want that to happen. So as you can tell from my voice, I'm pretty passionate about this area.
0: I would recommend your book to anyone, in particular, aspiring journalists, because I love that it really shows with all of these stories that you describe. Generally, you have Very little preparation. You you get a phone call, and next thing you know, you're on a plane. You throw some things into a bag, or you have a bag pre-packed, and then you're getting up to speed. So you're not having the time to do the mental preparation of like, okay, this is going to be very traumatic. Here's what I need to do to prepare myself. It's like go, 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 and you know, study up on what the story is and become the expert so you can then tell other people. I mean, it. I just think it really demystifies this
1: Mm. career. Oh and that is what I really wanted to do because I think what is the point of writing a book and writing a memoir if you're not going to be absolutely honest with the reader and I'm often surprised when I give speeches and people say to me gosh did you um, worry about being so frank or and you know honest about not just the professional side of things but about my personal life and it's like, well, what is the point of writing a book? What is the point of encouraging someone to pay money to read a book if they're picking it up and not sure if I have actually revealed something of myself? So I had to make that decision before I even made, wrote one word, basically. And look, the writing of the book, publishers had asked me a couple of times to write something over the years, but I'd sort of always said to them, look, I don't know that the world needs more Lisa Miller. It's fine. I don't. <laughs> and besides, <laughs> what's so special about my life? That's what I kept saying. I don't understand why anyone would be interested in this. But then a particular publisher in Australia encouraged me and it came at the same time as the start of COVID and I had moved to Melbourne and I was in lockdown in Melbourne, as many people around the world would know that the capital of Victoria ended up being one of the most locked down cities in the world. And so I thought, well, if I'm ever going to do it, now is the time because I'd started working on ABC News Breakfast and I was still going into the studio every morning to record that show, to to broadcast it live. But the minute it finished, I had to go home and I was then in my apartment for the rest of the day and wasn't able to leave my apartment. So a book was born, Jill. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad something positive came out of that time. Exactly. I'm I'm a a glass half full, Jill, as (laughs) you would know from the book, because a, a lot of people said, oh, we thought it was going to be, you know, maybe a bit of a downer, but then they actually finish it and feel quite uplifted because I do think despite all of the things that I've sort of confronted that I've kept this sense of joy about life and also I really wanted to encourage people who've ever suffered from fears because it's only once you have gone through a terrible fear. And mine lasted for about a decade and was going to derail any ambition I had of becoming a foreign correspondent. I mean, who's heard of a foreign correspondent who's afraid of flying, right? <laughs> and um, so once you overcome something like that, it is without a doubt one of the most empowering things that can happen to you. Like, it's like you've put the Wonder Woman cape on.
0: So so. Talk a bit about how you were able to overcome that. Um, I love that you're very candid about this in the book, but a lot of people suffer from a fear of flying. And and you,
1: you, were, you were traveling even while you did suffer from this fear. Oh, yeah, I never there. missed a flight, but I was physically sick. I would vomit or have diarrhea in the days leading up to a flight. Just getting on a Boeing 737, I would be sick with fear, but I had always had this... Um, i don't know sort of expectation of myself that i would show up you know that that is what they say about lisa miller she showed up even if she was sick or fearful it it came down to accepting that professionals could help and that you don't know everything in fact you know very little and so i'm a big believer in professionals when it came to the fear of flying, professionals when it comes to mental health. I'm so open with younger reporters about saying it's good to, you know, debrief with a psychologist or go to a counsellor. Don't think that somehow you can fix yourself. If you had a broken leg, you wouldn't go, oh, I'm not going to go to the doctor because I can just whip up a cast at home. We've Mm -hmm. got to try and equalise what you do for your physical health, where you seek professional help, and what you do for your mental health. And fear of flying was part of mental health, because I didn't really understand that it was an anxiety that was then being blown out of all proportions. So what I thought was real which was that every time I got on a flight I was going to die right Mm -hmm. I was so convinced I would take photos of myself before getting on a flight so they would have the last photograph before the plane went down and I would die Mm -hmm. I mean can you imagine the stress and elevated hypertension that comes with living that way but I did a fear of flying course and they also said you are not going to be able to get rid of this fear overnight because you have been building it up for so long. And that also was good to accept that this was going to be a work in process. And so I just thought, okay, well, I can do this. I can take on a project and I can just work on it. And that's how I got over my fear of flying.
0: That's amazing. Like it's so much, so much hope. Yeah. through the book as well, of course, you've moved several times within your life and created communities each time you have. How have you been able to do that? You know, like make Melbourne your home, Washington, D.C., London, of course. What, what tips do you have on how to make
1: a, a foreign place feel like home? Say yes. Say yes to invitations. Uh, say yes to any opportunities that might come along. I've really discovered in life, and I write about this in the book, that yes, can lead you into awkward situations that you think, what the hell have I done here? I don't want to be here. But no, no is the end of the story. No takes you nowhere. And so I have met people who have become friends, who have remained in my life, simply by saying, Yes. The very first time I had to move to a strange town where I knew no one was in Townsville in North Queensland as a 21-year-old reporter. And I'd been, the newspaper I'd worked for had closed down. And so I had got the first job that had come along and it was a television job. And so I'm interviewing this woman who was a spokesperson for the cancer uh, Council. So they raise money for cancer research. And she said, Oh, I'm very nervous. This is my first TV interview. And I said, Well, I'm quite nervous. It's my first interview, too. <laughs> <laughs> I had never done a TV interview. <laughs> anyway, so to sort of relax both of us, we got chatting about her hobby, which was sailing. And she said, And I'd never been sailing before in my life and wasn't very interested in sailing. And she said, why don't you come out with us on a Wednesday night? we do a moonlight sail around Magnetic Island, which is off the coast of Townsville in North Queensland. And I said, yes. And that was 32 years ago. And she is still one of my dear friends. So I just, I think to form those communities, you have to take a leap of faith. And you have to put yourself out there. And you also have to give a bit, you have to make an effort. You can't expect people to be wanting to bring you into their community automatically. You have to do some of the work.
0: Oh, that's great advice. I love that story. Sailing, bring people together. <laughs> now, what what do you have coming up next? Do you have another book in the works?
1: Uh, Well, I'll tell you what I'm really passionate about at the moment and some of your listeners will know about it because this is an international event called Park Run, which every Saturday morning, people around the world run, walk or volunteer at a five kilometre free community timed run. When I first started doing it in London, would you believe in 2015, I did it for my physical health. Now I realise it is another tick in the box for mental health because every Saturday morning people turn up, the vibe is so positive, you're there with this community again. We talk about communities, so important. I know that on a Saturday morning I'm going to be seeing new friends, I'm going to be out in the open air, even if it might be sleeting and freezing, Everyone is in a great mood. And I've met so many incredible people who have joined Park Run because they felt that something was missing from their life. An emergency services nurse who was suffering from depression who came along and volunteered, never actually did the run, but volunteered each Saturday because. People were thanking her and people were grateful for her mm. being there, as opposed to how tough she had found it being a nurse during the COVID years, all masked up and and sort of being almost anonymous in a way. And it has just been such an eye-opener. So I don't know, there could be, there could be a book about Parkrun. <laughs> I might combine it all. I love park run. I've done it in London, and I've seen
0: like people. You're saying about that wholesome vibe—people proposing to each other, like kids and families, and you have volunteers, young and old. It's just so wonderful. I love that
1: it's global. It's oh, such it a is, well, We've got 450 park runs in Australia, oh, and way. we are probably going to double it over the next five years. And Jill, yesterday. I did my 98th park run. So I've some... got two more to go before I do my hundred and I get a fancy t-shirt I was and I gonna... can proudly wear it. <laughs> that is a great to do. You see a lot of fifties. You don't see so many hundreds. Yeah. That is but amazing. The other thing on that though, is that I'm really trying to build up the number of times I volunteer as well, because I mm. think that is just as important Mm. as how many times you do the 5k volunteering is great for the people you're helping but oh my god what it gives you back is tenfold so that is my message
0: it's right because they need those volunteers it's gotten so big now you know it's Mm -hmm. um it's such a, um, which is great. Oh, millions but, yeah. of people
1: do it. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I'm sure that between you and I, we have just convinced someone listening to this to do park <laughs> run. Like,
0: it's, yeah, it's, it's such great. a great. It's free.
1: Just jump online and register.
0: Yeah, such such a such a happy wholesome event. Well, thank you so much for sharing your stories, your tales about your book, and your inspirational community building tips. It's so great to see you. And I hope you Thank keep it posted you. on what's
1: coming up next. I will. Thank you, Jill. I really appreciate the chat. Thank you.